the dictum and saying of Timothy Colani that Mark 13 contains the eschatology of Jewish Christians and that, and I quote, Jesus could not have shared their opinions, continues to receive support, even where the judgment is made more obliquely. Colani's major contention that there is no connection between Jewish messianism and the gospel of Jesus is advocated, consciously or unconsciously, by large sections of the Bible reading population. Many would be happy to dismiss the apocalyptic discourse, not necessarily by, so to speak, blaming it on the disciples, but by seeing no possible relevance in it for us. It might be tolerated as a prediction of the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, or even as a mistaken forecast of a dramatic parousia, which did not take place as Jesus expected within the prescribed generation. Mark 13, verse 30. Jesus, as he said, after all, was a product of his own limited age, and certainly we must divorce ourselves from the crudely naive worldview presented by the apocalypticists. It is fair to ask the question whether the common antipathy to the Markan apocalyptic discourse in chapter 13 does not arise mainly from the, so to speak, fatal thing in exegesis that there is no such thing as research without presupposition. The more emancipated a scholar thinks he is, the less he is in actual fact. So said H. Riesenfeld in his book, The Gospel Tradition, written in 1970. Just as in the work of Bauer, and I quote here, his whole great structure came to grief, according to Stephen Neal in the interpretation of the New Testament in 1966, because Bauer had his presuppositions. So it may be that the rejection of apocalyptic, not only in Mark 13, but in the New Testament as a whole, can be traced to the pressure of evolutionistic materialism and the whole secular climate of thought, the pressure of secular philosophy behind the interpretation of eschatology in terms of existentialism. That's a quotation from A.L. Moore in his book The Parousia in the New Testament, written in 1966. The presence of prejudice in the evaluation of Mark 13 is shown by the extraordinary contrast presented by scholarly treatment of this chapter. C.H. Weiser speaks of, and here I quote from him, an utterance constructed out of the most narrow and superstitious belief in the symbolic sayings of a fantastic book, that's to say Daniel, which ignorance or conceit attributed to a renowned old prophet 
and out of the most extravagant, half-insane imagination. That's a quotation from Die Evangelische Geschichte kritisch und philosophisch bearbeitet, written in 1838, and cited by Desmond Ford in his The Abomination of Desolation in Biblical Eschatology, written in 1979. T.F. Glasson sums up the Markan Apocalypse as this picture of a mistaken fanatic, as from his appearing in his kingdom, the Christian hope in the light of its history, written in 1953. J.A.T. Robinson more moderately describes it, Mark 13 that is, as a secondary compilation reflecting the expectation of the early church, as from Jesus and his coming, written in 1957. D. Schenkel, on the other hand, finds Mark 13 to be the most impressive and powerful utterance that Jesus made. That's from Das Charakterbild Jesu, written in 1866. Our purpose is to suggest that hostile criticism of Mark 13 stems from a deep-seated antipathy to Jesus good news or gospel about the kingdom of God, which is itself a thoroughly Jewish and apocalyptic concept based on the all-important book of Daniel and other Old Testament prophecy read as prediction of the end times. If we tear the gospel proclaimed by Jesus from its apocalyptic setting, there is no story to tell. Mark 13 is the natural climax to the account of the Messiah's conquest of the kingdom of Satan during his brief ministry in Palestine. However, Messiah's work was preliminary and preparatory. In keeping with what the prophets had foreseen, the Messiah must yet triumph in a renewed earth, following the time of distress destined to precede the ultimate resolution of the conflict between the powers of evil and the faithful few. Is it intrinsically more difficult to believe that Jesus should return amid scenes of glory to reign on the earth than that he returned from death to talk to his disciples? Why should the Markan apocalyptic discourse be thought a thing incredible and worthy of any less attention and acceptance as true than the Sermon on the Mount? A mistaken prediction? G.R.B. Murray does well to remind us that behind the whole controversy over eschatology lay a reaction to the attacks on Jesus by agnostics and that the chain of emotional reaction has worked continuously in the history of exegesis and abides in measure 
today. That's from Beasley Murray's book, Jesus and the Future, written in 1954. At the heart of the problem was the observation of 19th century rationalists that Jesus expected to return immediately following the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. It is impossible to evade the acknowledgement in this discourse in Mark 13 if we do not mutilate it to suit our own views that Jesus at first speaks of the destruction of Jerusalem and further on and until the close of his return and the end of all things and that he places the two events in immediate connection. That's a quotation from the life of Jesus cited by Beasley Murray in Jesus and the Future. In the same vein, David Schenkel wrote, all attempts to deny the connection between the fall of Jerusalem and the end of the age in apologetic interests are mere sophistry and merit no refutation. That's from Das Charakter Bild Jesu, cited by Beasley Murray in Jesus and the Future. Colani's objection was likewise that Jesus, in the discourses which are attributed to him, announces that he will come back immediately after Jerusalem has been defiled. If the words which are placed in his mouth have any sense, they have this sense. And if they do not have it, it is because for theologians, black means white and white means black. But for everyone who is not a sophist, this dilemma poses itself categorically. Either Jesus is mistaken or these discourses are not from him. The Christian church cannot, without disloyalty, escape this dilemma. That's a quotation from T. Colani's book, Croyance Messianique, on page 252. The challenge is quite clear. Jesus is reported as predicting the end of the age in connection with the fall of Jerusalem. Moreover, his use of apocalyptic material places him within traditional Jewish apocalypticism. We must, as believers, work with these facts. We simply dare not dismiss the material as unworthy of Jesus. As F. G. Burkitt wrote, without the belief in the good time coming, I do not see how we can be Christians at all. The belief in the good time coming as the most important thing in the world and therewith the duty of preparing ourselves and our fellow men to be ready as the first duty and privilege of humanity. This is the foundation of the gospel. So wrote Burkitt in his The Gospel History and its Transmission, written in 1906. 
The Roots of Mark 13 in Daniel. There's no good reason for perplexity either at Jesus' use of apocalyptic material or his intertwining of events concerning Jerusalem with the end of the age. Once it is recognized that the eschatological discourse is simply a coherent exposition of and meditation upon the book of Daniel, especially chapters 7, 8, 9, 11, and 12. A.C. Sundberg has noted that Daniel, alone among all the Old Testament books, is quoted in Mark from every chapter. It is of the highest level of significance for the New Testament as a whole, as a result of Daniel's overwhelming importance for Mark, not only in the synoptic apocalypse of Mark 13, but also in his portrayal of the career of Jesus, beginning, as Daniel does, with miracle stories and moving through the issue of martyrdom, Mark 8. 31 and following, to personal, Mark 9, verse 2, compare Daniel 10, and cosmic revelations, Mark 13, equivalent to Daniel 7, verse 9. Mark has been influenced directly by Daniel and his representation of the career and intention of Jesus. That's from an article on testimonies in Novum Testamentum 3 of 1959. Mark's debt to Daniel reflects Jesus' own preoccupation with apocalyptic, which provides the major categories of his teaching, Kingdom of God. Daniel 2 verse 44 Daniel 7, verse 14, Son of Man, as in Daniel 7, verse 13, Cosmic Conflict, as in Daniel 10, Revelation of the Secret of God's Purpose in History, Daniel 2, verse 28, the Raz, or Mystery, revealed to the initiated, as we find too in Mark 4, verse 11. It is clear that Jesus' patterns of thought, indeed his whole conceptual framework, owe much to his Jewish apocalyptic worldview. The structure of the whole of New Testament Christianity is built upon this distinctively Jewish Old Testament Weltanschauung, or worldview. To understand Jesus' mission, apart from its native Jewish environment is simply to alter the message beyond recognition. The mistaken attempt to do this results in the confusion over eschatology, indeed over the gospel itself, which is characteristic of the history of exegesis and apparent everywhere in contemporary Christendom. It is basic to the thinking of Jesus 
that Daniel provides a comprehensive view of history and that God is guiding the course of history towards the goal which he has determined, the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth or under the whole heaven, as we read in Daniel 7, verse 27. Consequent upon the destruction of hostile forces concentrated in a final Antichrist. The elect may look forward to a bright future in the new age of the kingdom, which will be inaugurated by the arrival of the Son of Man. This teleological linear view of history, so antithetical to a cyclical view found in Hellenism, is the basis of the Mark and Apocalypse as well as Jesus' whole preaching of the Gospel. History is moving towards an identifiable telos or end, the restoration of all things which the prophets have promised, as we read in Acts 3 verse 21. Endurance by the faithful in the face of a hostile world is meaningful only because God has promised to vindicate their cause by intervening to send the Messiah to inaugurate the kingdom of God and take them, the saints, to rule with him. As we find in Matthew 19, verse 28, compare with that 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, 2 Timothy 2, verse 12, Revelation 2, verse 26, Revelation 3, verse 21, Revelation 5, verse 10, and Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6. This view of history, which has its roots in the Old Testament and nowhere more clearly than in Daniel, expects an increase in the intensity of the struggle between God and the powers of evil. As the end approaches, false teachers will proliferate and a final abomination of desolation will signal the ultimate in apostasy. Mark 13, verse 14. Eventually, amidst cosmic disturbance, the Messiah will arrive in glory to set up his kingdom. As we read in Mark 13, verses 24 to 27, and compare with that Luke chapter 21, verse 31. It is not difficult to see that this is the theme underlying the Mark and Apocalypse. It will be revealing to point to the connections between Mark 13 and Daniel, as well as some other Old Testament prophets, to show that Mark 13 is a carefully developed midrash or explanation based on a well-established foundation provided by Daniel. When Mark introduces the Apocalypse, Peter, James, John, and Andrew present their question. Tell us, when will this be, and what will be the sign when all these things are to be accomplished?
in the Greek meli tafta sintelisthe fanta. As Lars Hartmann points out in his book Prophecy Interpreted, written in 1966, the question is strongly reminiscent of the phrase in Daniel 12, verse 7. In this passage, the angel replies to Daniel's question about how long it will be until the end. This is the quotation from Daniel. When the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things will be accomplished. In the Septuagint Greek, Sintelesisete tafta panta. No doubt Mark and Jesus, whom he records, took seriously the Danielic material which had long been seen as a revelation of the events of the end time. In every chapter containing a dream or revelation, the end is reached after much conflict and the kingdom of God is set up. Of particular interest would have been the activity of a final horn in chapters 7 and chapter 8, who wages war with the saints and is equated with the evil king of the north of chapter 11. The interpreting angel speaks of attacks on the people of God, the establishment of an abominable desolator in the temple, and the final deliverance of the saints. You'll find that in Daniel chapter 11, verse 21, to Daniel chapter 12, verse 13. It's important to note that anyone who reflected upon the material in Daniel would see that a common theme unites the various visions. All concentrate on a single subject. All are complementary and form a coherent whole. All have the same horizon. Lars Hartmann, in his book Prophecy Interpreted, points out what is readily seen by any student of Daniel, that a last king acts blasphemously and speaks great words against God. We read that in Daniel chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 11. He interferes with the temple cult, as we find in chapter 7, 8, 9, and 11. And he persecutes the chosen people, as in chapters 7, 8, 9, and 11. He will be supernaturally destroyed, as we read in chapters 2, 7, 8, 9, and 11. This event will mark the end time and the resurrection of the dead, as we find in Daniel 12, verse 2. See also chapters 8, 9, 11, and 12. Thereupon the kingdom will appear. Lars Hartmann is right to point out that it would be most unnatural if these pericopes, which from the beginning were so closely associated with each other, 
were not readily kept together in the exposition. Lars Hartmann refers to this manner of uniting the texts in a complete picture or composite picture as the basic rule of rabbinic exposition, both halakhic and Haggadic. From Daniel, it would be well known by Jesus and his contemporaries that from a fourth empire, described in Daniel chapter 2, a warlike ruler would appear, attack Palestine, persecute the faithful, and seduce God's people into a terrible apostasy, and, as the abomination of desolation, desecrate the temple. Exactly the same themes, elaborated with further detail, appear in Mark chapter 13. Mark 13 verse 7 speaks of wars and rumors of wars. The link with Daniel is clear. The whole of Daniel 11 speaks of war between the king of the north and the south. In Daniel 11 verse 21, a final king of the north, a contemptible person, exercises dominion and from verse 25 struggles with his opponent, the king of the south. In addition, Daniel 9 verse 26 announces that, quote, to the end there will be war. The end in this case being the end of 70 heptads or periods of seven in terms of weeks of years allotted for the completion of desolations and the final restoration of the sanctuary. There are further echoes of Daniel in Mark chapter 13 verse 7 where we read these things must take place. This is the language of predetermination in the divine plan which we find also in Daniel 8 verse 19. I shall make known to you what shall be. And in Daniel chapter 2 verse 28 what will take place. The mark and phrase, but the end is not yet, is reminiscent of Daniel 11 verse 27, where it is said that the end is yet to be at the appointed time. The words upoto tell us in Mark 13 verse 7 must be said to be very closely related to this sentence. The dependence of the remainder of the Mark and Apocalypse on Old Testament material may be demonstrated by listing its more obvious connections with Daniel and other Old Testament passages. For example, in Mark 13 verse 5, Be not led astray. Many will say, I am he. Based on the blasphemy of Babylon, in Isaiah 14, verse 13, Isaiah 47, verse 8, compare with that Daniel 7, chapter 8, chapter 11, chapter 8, verse 10 and following, verse 25, and Daniel 11, verse 36. Then Mark 13, 
verse 7. Wars and rumors of wars. Compare with that the text on which that is based, the blasphemy and war sequence in Daniel 7, verses 20 and following. Daniel 7, verse 21. Daniel 9, verse 26. Daniel 8, verse 23. And Daniel 11, verse 25. And then in Mark 13, verse 7. Nation against nation. Compare with that Isaiah 19, verse 2, in connection with Egypt. Compare the king of the south in Daniel 11. Again in Mark 13, verse 12, delivering up to authorities. Compare with that Daniel 7, verse 25, given into his hand. Again in Mark 13, verse 13, he who endures to the end, compare with that Daniel 11, verses 32 and 35, endurance to the end. And in Mark 13, verse 14, the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to. That's based on Daniel 9, verse 27, Daniel 11, verse 31, and Daniel 12, verse 11. The abomination of desolation in the temple for 1290 days. In Mark 13, verse 19, we find the great tribulation. That's based on Daniel 12, verse 1, unprecedented trouble followed by resurrection. In Daniel 12, verse 2. In Mark 13, verse 24, darkening of the sun, based on the day of Yahweh. In Joel 2, verse 10, and Isaiah 34, verse 4. In Mark 13, 26, the Son of Man appears. That's based on Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14. Compare with that Mark 14.62. Finally, in Mark 13.27, we find that the angels gather the elect, based on Zechariah 2, verse 10. The fall of the temple and the end of the age. Our survey so far does not exhaust the links between Mark 13 and the Old Testament, but it is sufficient to show the dependence of Jesus' final discourse on well-established apocalyptic themes. There's no reason to doubt that the New Testament writers shared with their contemporaries the conviction that the end had been foreseen by Daniel, together with a coherent picture of the events leading up to that consummation. The paranetic element in Mark 13 is, as Lars Hartmann has shown, also not unconnected with Daniel. The warning not to be led astray, Mark 13 verse 5, arises naturally from Daniel 8 verse 25, where the evil tyrant, and I quote, corrupts many while they are at ease. The hifil of the verb shachat 
may mean destroy in a moral or religious sense. Furthermore, it is his cunning which deceives the unwary, and as Hartman points out, the Hebrew mirma, cunning, is rendered by the Septuagint as blani, deceives, in Proverbs 14, verse 8. If it be granted with many commentators that the basic perspective of Mark 13 is drawn from Daniel, and that his view of the future climax in history is built on a collation of apocalyptic material from the Old Testament, it is fair to ask how the discourse is to be understood as a forecast of the future. At this point, we must remember the fundamental objection of the critics that Jesus saw the end as a single complex of events involving the destruction of Jerusalem. Since it's impossible to introduce a long time lag between the description of Jerusalem's fall and the arrival of the Son of Man, how is the problem of non-fulfillment to be resolved? We note that attempts to divide the Jerusalem crisis from the end of the age cannot succeed. In Mark 13, some have selected verse 24 as the point of division, but it is obviously tied to the previous verse by the clear chronological connection in those days after that tribulation. Others attempt to separate verse 20 from verse 19, but they are clearly joined by the reference to those days. Likewise, the word then in verse 21 cannot but refer to the verses which precede. The severity of the problem is shown by Feuillet's exegetical wrestling. Here's what he had to say in French. Alors, en effet, on se trouve réduit à cette alternative, ou bien il faut soutenir que Jésus s'est trompé en faisant coïncider dans, la, dans sa réponse les deux événements, ou bien il faut chercher dans le présent discours certains traits qui permettent de distinguer les deux événements et de montrer que le Christ ne les a pas confondus. Mais cette entreprise des commentateurs paraît une véritable gageur. Les documents qui nous rapportent son discours ne permettent de faire aucune discrimination nette entre les deux événements. In my translation into English, so then, Feuillet says, we are faced with two alternatives. Either we must maintain that Jesus was wrong in his reply when he stated that the two events would coincide, or else we must look for certain features in the discourse which will permit us to distinguish 
the two events and show that Christ did not confuse them. But this undertaking by commentators appears to run into insuperable difficulty. The documents which relate Jesus' discourse will not allow any clear distinction between the two events. Fourier's désespoir de cause, or his despair in finding any point of separation, is the result of two presuppositions, the second of which must be challenged in the light of the antecedent material in Daniel. Firstly, Jesus and the disciples who questioned him associate the fall of Jerusalem with the parousia. Secondly, the fall of Jerusalem to which Jesus referred was the event of AD 70. The conclusion based on these premises must be that Jesus was mistaken about his return. It was the apparent logic of this position that forced Henry Sedgwick to become an agnostic. Christ, he thought, had foretold things which did not happen. The problem is only compounded by Jesus' assertion that all these things would take place within this generation. Mark 13, verse 30. Since it cannot be argued that Mark makes room for any dissociation of the two crises, and since a mistaken judgment about the time of the second coming would render Jesus a false prophet, Desmond Ford maintains that the prediction of Mark 13 was contingent upon certain events, just as Jonah's announcement of the fall of Nineveh depended on the continuing sin of the city, Jonah 3, verses 4 and 10. This solution is original, but hardly possible. There's no hint in Mark 13, or in its source in Daniel, that the events may not happen given certain circumstances. The prophecy reads as a straightforward account of what must surely come to pass in the divine plan. There's another simple solution to our dilemma. Jesus and the disciples did indeed expect the parousia to occur immediately after the desolation of Jerusalem, as we read in Matthew's clear chronological transition in Matthew 24, verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days. But the time of distress for Jerusalem in question was not that of A.D. 70, but one lying yet in the future just before the parousia. Not only does our Mark and Apocalypse describe distress in Jerusalem just before the Messiah comes, but this is exactly what we find also in Daniel chapter 11, verses 21 and following, and Daniel chapter 12. 
The same fact is reflected by the disciples' original question. They expected a desolation of the temple in Jerusalem in connection with the end, as we find in Mark 13, verse 4, and Matthew 24, verse 3. The basis for this single crisis involving Jerusalem and the parousia is derived from many Old Testament passages as well as from other Jewish apocalypses. Moreover, Daniel 11, from which, as we've seen, Mark 13 draws much of its information, specifically limits the time span from the appearance of the final abomination in Daniel 11.31 until the end to a period of just over three and a half years. The point is stated twice in the epilogue of the vision of chapter 11 and given in Daniel chapter 12, verses 7 and 11. The latter text reads, and from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1290 days. Similarly, in verse 7, the end-time apocalyptic drama will be completed after a time, times, and half a time. A time, I note, appears to be the equivalent of a year in Daniel, Daniel 4.25 and verse 32. Compare with that Revelation 11, verse 2 and verse 3. Revelation 12, verse 6 and verse 14. And Revelation 13, verse 5. Daniel 11.31 had foreseen the appearance of the abomination of desolation in the temple as a result of the activity of the wicked king of the north. Mark's significant grammatical anomaly, a masculine participle esticota in Mark 13 verse 14, modifying a neuter abomination, shows that Mark thought of the abomination as a human person rather than an inanimate idol. This, of course, brings his material into harmony with the Pauline description of Antichrist in the temple in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 to 12, and with the later elaborate description of a final tyrant in Revelation chapters 13 and 17. The source of all these New Testament presentations is the book of Daniel in addition to material from Isaiah. This generation, if Jesus, following the well-established scheme laid out by Daniel, expected the parousia to follow a desolation of Jerusalem, what of the problematic word generation in which all these things are to be completed? since Jesus goes on to say that not even the Son of Man knows the time of the end. Mark 13, verse 32. 
it would be most odd for him to have fixed the time of the end so specifically within the lifetime of his audience. It is much more probable that the term yenea, generation, should not be read as a period of 40 or 70 years, but as the equivalent of age, inclusive of unregenerate society in its present form in opposition to God. What Paul calls the present evil age or aeon, which will last until the parousia. And compare with that Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. Such a meaning for yenea can be traced to the Septuagint where it translates the Hebrew word dor or age. Jesus elsewhere contrasted the present generation or yenea with the era to be initiated by his return. Mark 8, verse 38. The remarks of C.E.B. Cranfield are helpful. In Mark 8, verse 38, yenea is probably best taken in the sense age or period of time, which is the primary meaning of the Hebrew word dor, the word it most often represents in the Septuagint and the possible meaning of yenea. The whole phrase, this generation, is contrasted with, quote, when the Son of Man comes in the glory of his Father, and so it is roughly equivalent to in this time, Mark 10, verse 30, which is contrasted with in the coming age. The time meant is the time before the parousia. That's a quotation from the Cambridge Greek Testament commentary on Mark, written in 1972, page 284. This probable meaning of yenea is confirmed by the Dictionary of Christ and the Gospels. In volume 1, page 639 and 640, under the article Yenea, we read this. That Yenea, rendered generation, does express the current age of the world period is obvious in the Gospels. Luke 16, verse 8, The sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind, Yenea, than the sons of light. And again in Matthew 24, verse 34, This generation will not pass until all these things have happened. And less clearly, in Matthew 23, verse 36, All these things shall come upon this generation, also the people of that age. As we read in Matthew 12, verse 39, Matthew 16, verse 4, Mark 8, verse 12, and Luke 11, verse 29. The wicked, so to speak, generation, as to say society or age, 
guilty of murdering the prophets extended beyond the limits of Jesus' contemporaries. Matthew 23, verse 35 and verse 36. Peter calls on Christians to save themselves from more than just the contemporary generation in Acts 2, verse 40. And Christians are to shine amidst a crooked generation or evil society in Philippians 2, verse 15. See also Ludwig Albrecht's Neues Testament with commentary on Mark 24, verse 34, where he renders the Greek word yenea as weltzeit, or age of time. It may be asked why it is that Jesus responded to a question about an existing temple, Mark 13, verse 2, by giving a description of the fall of Jerusalem beyond that of AD 70. The answer may be found in the peculiarly Hebrew way of incorporating the idea of two or more temples on the same site as one temple. Thus in Haggai 2 verse 3, this temple in its former glory is not the existing building and this house which will be filled with glory will be a new building altogether. The latter glory of this house involves a brand new edifice for the house standing at the time has long since been destroyed. By seeing a near and a distant destruction as a single event, we may recognize the destruction of AD 70 as precursive of the final eschatological calamities foreseen by Daniel. It may also be that Jesus did not know whether the temple existing in his day would be the one whose destruction would signal the end of the age. What he did know, based on Daniel, was that a temple would be the center of a terrible apostasy just prior to his return in glory. He was thus not mistaken in his prediction, which has not yet been fulfilled. This appears to be a satisfactory way of resolving the otherwise impossible difficulty presented by Jesus' prophecy, which encompasses in a single disaster the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the parousia. The chronological connecting adverbs of the Markan discourse and the parallels in Matthew, particularly Matthew 24, verse 29, immediately after, simply do not allow for a chasm of time to be inserted between the placing of the abomination in the temple, the unparalleled Great Tribulation, and the return of Christ. Nor does the source material in Daniel envisage such a thing. The events of Daniel 11, verses 31 and following, 
cited by Mark in chapter 13, verse 14, are to reach their completion within a span of 1290 days. Daniel 12, verses 7 and 11. A period of time ending with the resurrection of the dead, as in Daniel 12, verse 2. Conclusion. It appears to this writer that A.M. Hunter's designation of Mark 13 as the biggest problem in the gospel, to which he referred in his The Gospel According to Mark in the Torch Bible Commentaries of 1948, page 122, it appears that this phrase, the biggest problem in the gospel, is unwarranted. Horsher may reflect the opinion of many when he says that Mark 13 lacks any specifically Christian element. We find that in his book, Der Ursprung der Apokalypse Mark, cited by Desmond Ford in his book, The Abomination of Desolation in Prophecy. But the problem, so-called, is not the apocalypse. It is the received idea of what Jesus ought or ought not to say. The New Testament and Jesus, whom it portrays, is indeed inescapably and unashamedly apocalyptic in its basic concepts. So says Desmond Ford, too, in his book, The Abomination of Desolation in Prophecy. Apocalyptic eschatology is no mere appendix to the New Testament. It is, and I quote, the very fiber of the living strand. So said George Berge in a book, Some Aspects of the Life of Jesus from a Psychological and Psychoanalytical Point of View, written in 1923. The hesitancy of modern commentators to react in sympathy with Mark 13 reflects not the difficulty of the material, but the nonsense we have made of the Jewish Jesus by trying to domesticate him in our Western culture, which is so heavily influenced by Greek, unbiblical ways of thinking. Can we really believe that Jesus thought in this bizarre, fantastic way about the future? Asks C.F.D. Mole, did he really expect signs and portents in the sky? and the sudden winding up of history by some single instantaneous supernatural event? That was asked in Mould's Gospel according to St. Mark, 1965. The answer is, why not? And why, in view of the wickedness of man and his potential to destroy himself and the earth, should we not expect just such a judgment followed by the promised kingdom on earth described by all the prophets and Jesus as he preached it in the gospel. According to so many commentators who appear to resist the New Testament's expectation of a future catastrophe in history, 
we may save Jesus from the mistakes of his followers by maintaining that an original, purely spiritual concept of the kingdom has been deformed and altered owing to the incomprehension of people who were imbued with the apocalyptic messianism. Beneath the apocalyptic messianism and the traditional eschatology, the living experience remained the capital thing. The Jewish colors have faded out, but the kingdom of God remains as a reality of today, tomorrow, and the eternal future as a state of the soul. We no longer feel the need of casting this kingdom in precise material and temporal forms. It suffices for us to conceive it on the prolonged lines of an experience that has already been lived. That's a quotation from George Berger in his book, Some Aspects of the Life of Jesus from the Psychological and Psychoanalytical Point of View, written in 1923. Insofar as this sort of view has prevailed, the historical Jesus has been suppressed and the wisdom of man has been substituted for the wisdom of the master. The process by which the apocalyptic framework of the New Testament was lost is not difficult to trace. Under the influence of Hellenism, and I quote, the corporate element in the Christian hope, which is central in the New Testament, soon suffered eclipse, although it was still retained as part of the Christian creed. Interest was transferred to the fate of the individual after death and the vision of a transfigured universe which would be the scene of a fellowship reflecting the eternal purpose of God was sadly obscured. Preoccupation with the moment of death as it affected the future of the individual induced a blindness to the activity of God in history and to the cosmic as well as the social aspects of the redemption. Eschatology was thus concerned not with the restitution of all things, but with an individualistic concern about death, judgment, heaven, and hell. That's from Harold Roberts in his book, Jesus and the Kingdom of God, written in 1954 page 111. The outline of events foreseen in Mark 13 follows the pattern of predictions given earlier to Daniel. Neither Daniel nor Jesus envisaged the crisis in Jerusalem in 70 AD as separated by millennia from the parousia. When we limit the invasion of Jerusalem by hostile forces to an event in AD 70, we create a problem of non-fulfillment, since Jesus clearly expected his arrival in power and glory to occur in close connection 
with the appearance of the abomination of desolation. However, if we follow the chronological data of Daniel 11, verses 31 and following, we shall expect a final interference with the temple in Jerusalem, followed by the arrival of the Son of Man. Attempts to fit the Markan discourse into already fulfilled events fail because the parousia did not follow immediately upon the attack on Jerusalem as Jesus and Daniel predicted. The fact remains that, I quote, it is exegetically certain that Jesus spoke of the destruction of Jerusalem as an event that was to take place immediately before his second coming, the attempts to twist the word immediately in Matthew 24:29 from its proper meaning are inconsistent with the laws of purely objective exegesis. That quotation is from H. A. W. Meyer in his critical and exegetical commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, written in 1884, pages 430 and 434. Mark 13, read in the light of its background in Daniel, can help us to recover the vital faith of the New Testament from the devastating criticism of 19th century rationalism, which tried to eliminate the apocalyptic from the teaching of Jesus. The Christianity of the New Testament can be understood only in its own setting. The existing order, however prolonged, is destined to crumble amid scenes of unprecedented calamities. With the desolation of this system, the kingdom of God will be ushered in by the returning Son of Man. In view of the telos, or end, the believers must insist on ethical obedience, summed up by love inspired by the Spirit. Such an ethic certainly cannot allow them to kill each other. The failure of churches to transcend national interests points to the inability of mainstream demessianized Christianity to carry out the radical demands of the kingdom. The hope of Christians then is to enter the kingdom expected by Mark 13. We dare not tear the teaching of Jesus from its apocalyptic framework. Apart from that setting, there is no story to tell. And it is the triumph of the eschatologists to have recovered that atmosphere. So said F.R. Barry in his book, The Relevance of Christianity, written in 1931, page 98.